Thanks for tuning in to Three Strands Podcast. You're about to hear an episode from our Sunday morning worship service. To learn more about Three Strands, visit our website, threestrands.church. So if this is your first time here or you haven't been here for a long time or you've missed just the last few weeks, we are right in the middle of a series called Crossroads. And um, it's all about these big life-defining decisions we've got to make, moments in your life that will alter the direction you're going in one way or the other. They're really moments that you have to make a choice. They don't uh, allow you to just sit back and make no choice. They're going to change the way you go in life one way or the other. And and uh, we're right in the middle of that. So it's like six weeks long. And each of the six weeks, we're looking at the exact same story in the Bible. We're looking at the, uh, uh, the accounts, the, the descriptions, the details surrounding Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus' execution. But each week what we're doing is we're picking out a different character that came across Jesus' path. And we're seeing how they came to this moment of decision, a moment that they had to decide would they be with him or against him? Would they let this one thing define them forever, or would they change the direction of their life and go in a completely new way? And uh, along the way, we're realizing, I hope you're realizing if you've been here, that these are the same kind of moments we face in our life. So maybe in the first three weeks of this series, if you've been here, you've realized like these are all moments that all of us face. Moments of regret. Is there anybody in the room that doesn't know what it's like to have regrets? Is there anybody in the room that doesn't know what it's like to face moments of pressure, where it feels like the weight of the world's on your shoulders? Uh, Is there anybody in the room that doesn't know what it's like to come face-to-face with an opportunity and have to make a decision one way or the other on it? These are the moments we've looked at so far, life-defining kind of moments. Do I marry this person or stay single? Do I move to this state or stay where I'm at? Do I um, take this new job or stay with the one I've already got? And, And it can feel like, well, maybe I can choose to do nothing. But even the indecision or even the decision to not act actually sends your life in a brand new direction, doesn't it? So those are the kind of moments we're looking at in this series. And the one I want to talk to you about today is maybe the hardest one. I don't know. Maybe. But it's the moment of truth. The moment of truth. So if you're a note taker, just jot down moment, the moment of truth. And, and I'm going to try to explain it to you. And then we'll look at it in God's Word and just talk about it for a little bit uh, at that same story of Jesus's execution. But the moment of truth is for me, the hardest one out of these six to grab because it's the one that you have no chance of seeing coming. You can't see it coming. The other ones that we've talked about so far and the next couple that we're going to talk about um, next week, the moment of friendship and the moment of pain, those are all moments that you can kind of see them coming, good or bad, and you can kind of take some precaution. You can see the danger headed your way and turn the other way, or, or you can see the opportunity on the horizon and take full advantage of it. But this one, the moment of truth, you can't see coming. And here's why. The moment of truth only comes right before death. And there's no way to know when that moment's going to come for you. So it makes this one hard to prepare for, hard to predict. You don't know when it's going to happen. It's the moment of truth. There's no time to delay. You're going to have to make a choice one way or the other. And and to do that today, we're going to look at the story again of Jesus' execution, but this time we're going to pull in two new characters we hadn't looked at yet. They're two men that end up being executed with Jesus. And um, Jesus has already been beaten. He's been whipped. He's been spit on. He's been slapped. He's had his beard pulled out of his face. He's had a crown of thorns shoved down on his head. 
He's had to carry his own cross out to his execution site as if he was digging his own grave. And he was so weak that along the way, probably either fell or just couldn't go on. And so they had to recruit somebody else to help him carry his cross the rest of the way. He's beaten, battered, mocked, ridiculed, not in a good space. And we get to the cross where he's at. And that's where these other two guys enter into the picture. So let me read you the whole story first. And then we're going to just talk about this moment of truth. So if you want to follow along in a Bible, it's Luke chapter 23. Uh, The words will be on the screen too. We're going to be in Luke chapter 23. I'm going to start in verse 32. I want to read you the whole story. The whole piece, the whole paragraph here isn't about these two criminals that are executed with Jesus. But I want to read you the whole passage so you can get a better idea what's going on so you can get the context of the story a little bit better. So let me start in verse 32 where these guys come on the scene. And this is what it says. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. Him is Jesus in this story, right? Verse 33, when they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross and the criminals were also crucified, one on his right, one on his left. Verse 35, skip into verse 35. The crowd watched and, leaders, and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he's really God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words on it. This is the king of the Jews. Now one of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the moment of truth. These guys are literally a few hours from death. There's there's no other decisions they're going to make in their life. This is the last and final decision. And I don't know if you've had this opportunity or, or maybe it's not a blessing. Maybe it's a curse. Maybe it's a blessing or a curse. I don't know, depending on the situation. But I don't know if you've ever been able to be by folks when they die. But the times that I've stood beside somebody's bed when they died maybe about a dozen times in my life. And I've watched some of those people decide to follow Jesus in that moment, to hear the good news about Jesus, that he can save them and give them eternal life and them to receive it. I've watched other people kind of seem like they're listening and being courteous, but just kind of checked out. And then I've seen other people that kind of do this thing. I don't know if you've ever seen this or not, but it's like you're sharing with them about Jesus and, hey, this is your last Chance, this is the moment of truth. Will you cry out to him to save you? Will you surrender your whole life to him and he'll rescue you and give you eternal life? And they're kind of looking at you and when you start talking about that, their eyes kind of glaze over and they just kind of roll their head to one side. Still resistant. And they've come to this moment of truth and some of them embrace Jesus and some of them reject Jesus and some of them seem like they're embracing him, but maybe they are, maybe they're not. I don't, you don't ever really know. But there's no other decisions to make. It's the final moment. And in that moment, there won't be one person that wishes they had more money. 
or one person that wishes they could put in another shift at the office. There's not one person that wishes uh, that they could just have one more day so they could eat a, a dessert that they love. It won't work like that. You'll be faced with this moment of truth, and that's what these guys are faced with. I've told our church this story before, but when I was growing up, the church I went to did this thing around Halloween time. They called it the scare mare. I don't even know what that meant, but they called it the scare mare. I guess because it rhymed. I don't even know what the mare, I don't know if it was like a bunch of horses that were scared. I don't know what that means, but it was the scare mare. I don't know, like a nightmare, I guess, but like scare mare. I guess. Okay. So, and they owned this huge castle. It was on their church property and it was like super run down and old and they would deck it out every year. Um, and, and they tried to make it as if you were going through like a kind of a haunted house thing, you know, but they called it like a walk through hell, okay? And so you'd go through and we'd have like, I don't know, there's like 50, 60 people from our church that would be like actors in this thing. And you would go through this castle in groups and as they led you through, it was supposed to be kind of like you were walking through hell, right? And so you'd come to different rooms and in different rooms, there'd be like, you know, screaming people just like gnashing their teeth and wailing in pain. And it would be dark, like outer darkness. And they would heat up a bunch of the space and it would be like, you know, you're in this like really hot, you know, eternal flame kind of place. And you'd come to rooms with like demons in them and Satan and people would be like grabbing at you in the dark. And now you'd get sued for all that probably, but I'm just saying back then we didn't know any better. So, and so you walk through this uh, like huge castles, like six stories high and it was like just huge. And you'd walk through all these different rooms and they'd have, I mean, they'd like go, all, they'd hang like, you know, cow intestines and stuff. You'd be like walking through like living, like it was gross. You get blood on you. So not good, Sam, not good. I don't think it was real blood. I'm just messing with you on that part. But, but they did do stuff like that. And there was one room I remember when I was a little kid. And I, was just, I was traumatized by it. This huge guy in our church. He's like the biggest guy in our church. And they always put him in like a, 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 like a, a Jason mask. You know what I'm talking about? And he'd pop out of a closet in one room with like a chainsaw without the blade. Like it just running without the blade on it. Terrified me, man. It was like, if that, doesn't, if that doesn't scare you into heaven, I don't know what will. And then the last scene in the maze you come to is like the grand foyer of the castle. And it's got this huge staircase in it, you know. And at the top of the staircase is Jesus sitting on this throne. And you can't really see him. You can't make him out. But they've got all this light shining from behind him. So you just kind of see his silhouette, you know. And, and the bottom of the staircase is all dark. And you're all standing there. And it's supposed to represent like the great white throne judgment. Where, where we'll stand in front of Jesus at the end of time and he'll judge everybody based on what they did with the information that was provided to them, based on what they did um, in relationship to him as the son of God. And, and he will um, you know, throw people into outer darkness, into hell. And so you'd have these actors in our church would come up and they'd stand before the Lord and they'd make their case tell all the good things they had done or all the times they had been to church or all the Bible verses they learned growing up or whatever. And Jesus would look at him and say, I don't even know who you are. Depart from me. And there'd be these angels would come in and just drag the person off, kicking and screaming to hell. And uh, I remember one year, there was a group of teen guys. They probably looked like Johnny. Look at like kind of tough looking, you know. This group of teen guys came by themselves to this event. There's like five of them in a car, and they are mocking the thing the whole way through, you know, because it's not real scary to them. And they're just like, you know, criticizing it. This is a joke. Of course, it was free. So you're just like, you know, come on, dude, free, you know. But they're mocking it the whole way through, making jokes about it. And uh, at one point, the one kid says, um, the one kid says, like, hell, hell doesn't seem so scary to me. 
I'd love to go there. It's dark. I could sleep whenever I want. All my friends will be there. And all the other guys are like, yeah, yeah, send me to hell too. And on the way home that night, their car wrecked and all five of them died. Did they die because of that? Was that like a judgment on them? I'm not sure. I'm not God, so I can't tell you that. But what I can tell you is this. What those five guys failed to realize as they were walking through that castle, what they didn't know at the time when they were making all their jokes and asking to be sent to hell, what they didn't realize was that walk through the castle was the moment of truth. They just didn't know it because they didn't know death was 20 minutes away. That's the problem with the moment of truth. You might think you're invincible and you might think you got decades to figure this all out and you might think you can decide on your deathbed, but how do you know that deathbed's even going to come? The moment of truth will come on you just like that. That's what we're talking about today. Now this story of Jesus being executed is packed full of irony. I don't know if you can pick up on it or see any of it, but I just went through real quick and I made a quick little list for myself of some of the things that came to my mind that make this story of Jesus' crucifixion, his execution, kind of ironic. Now see if you don't agree with some of these, how ironic it is. So it's like he, Jesus, the righteous one, is being executed by guilty ones. Isn't that ironic? And then I'm thinking like I wrote down this one. Everyone is blaspheming the one who's being executed for blasphemy. Isn't that ironic? It's like this whole story is just dripping with irony. He's being cursed by his enemies who hate him while simultaneously being cursed by his father who loves him. It's ironic. The story is just like packed full of stuff like this. Jesus being unwilling to save himself somehow becomes the savior of the whole world. He, Jesus, the source of all life, is dying to provide life. It's just all ironic, you know? And then I come to these characters today, and, and what struck me as ironic about these two guys being executed with Jesus today is that here's Jesus being mocked for being unable to save himself or anybody else while simultaneously saving somebody. Isn't it amazing? Like if you could see through the mob mentality to what's really going on here, there's so much irony in this story. Those are just a few of them. But now don't, don't misunderstand. Like the point of this story, the point of this scene that's playing out here is to make fun of Jesus. That's the whole point of the cross. The whole point, if you look at all of the words I just read you from Luke, the whole theme of the scene is to make a mockery of Jesus who claimed to be the king, the son of God. Everything from the sign put above his head to the crown of thorns jammed down on his head to the, to, the, to the words being spoken and hurled, the insults hurled at him from the crowd. So you're the king? Prove it, king. Here's a crown for you, king. Here's a purple robe, your majesty. Here's the sign to let everybody know you're the king of the Jews, a king with no money and no soldiers, no horses, no power. He can't even get his own drink. It's all designed to humiliate him and point out the fact that, like, this is supposed to be the king. He can't do a thing. And simultaneously, he's saving the whole world and offering that salvation to one guy who can't even move. It's just ironic. 
But that's the point of the scene, that they would massively um, throw as many insults and mockeries on Jesus as they could. Now, don't get confused. This isn't a story about Jesus being executed with two men executed beside him and him using his last ounce of strength and energy and breath to reach out and save an innocent one. That's not what's going on here. This guy's guilty. Luke pointed it out that they're both criminals. But we won't read it today, but if you want to flash there for yourself and check it out sometime, Matthew chapter 27 and Mark chapter 15, two more accounts where these two guys that are executed with Jesus are mentioned. John also mentions it. But in Matthew and Mark, they point out another fact that Luke kind of leaves out. And and here's the fact that, that, that these two guys were both mocking Jesus too. They joined the crowd in ridiculing Jesus and making fun of him. Saying things like, you're supposed to be the king, save yourself. Just like the first guy does in this story. The second guy is not all innocent. Sounds like he was chiming in too. But then you read Luke's account, and he seems different. He seems kind of humbled. He seems kind of desperate, and he seems kind of like he's on Jesus' side now. What, what happened? I don't really know what happened, if I'm being honest. But somehow this guy went from mocking and ridiculing Jesus to realizing that Jesus was his only hope for eternal life. How do you do that? Here's how he, here's how he did it. You ready? The only thing I can come up with is that this was a supernatural act of God. That God kind of reached into our world and softened this guy's heart. And at some point as he's hanging on the cross, he has a change of heart. It's like he's ridiculing and mocking Jesus and then at some point he kind of gathers himself and maybe furrows his brow and just kind of thinks like, what am I doing here? What, what changed his mind? Your guess is kind of as good as mine. But they're not the same guy. Something changed from beginning to end. So I, I want to illustrate something for you if I can. I need like, Michael, can you be a volunteer again? Is that okay? I, need, I know you're always my volunteer. Well, he always sits in the front. Can you just put that on? I need one more volunteer. Oh, Sam, come here. I need somebody without glasses, so. Yeah. Sam, you're often a volunteer, too. It's, that's why people sit in the back at this church. <laughs> Can you just put that on for a second and then just stand over here? And now, last week, if you were here, Michael was Jesus. I got a lot of complaints about that, so, um, so it could be worse this week, though, because this week I'm going to be Jesus, so it could be worse. But, um, and these are the two criminals. You, gotta, you guys can put your arms up like you're on a cross. You know, the, you know the routine. Not on the hood, Michael. Not on the hood, on, out like this. Yeah, there you go. Okay, so, so I'm Jesus on the cross, right? And these are the two criminals beside me. And, and, and what you can't see in the text that's really going on in their hearts is that they're both blindfolded. They can't see what's really happening. Just like the crowd, they can't understand what's really taking place. Did you ever realize how ridiculous it is that you would be hanging on the cross dying and you would be making fun of somebody else who's hanging on the cross dying? It'd be like being in a hospital, breathing your last breaths, about to die, and making fun of the guy in the room next to you who's about to die. Doesn't it seem like so ridiculous? 
But that's the situation these guys find themselves in, right? They're literally joining the crowd, mocking Jesus. They're so blind to what's happening, they can't even realize what's going on. And God reaches down. I'm going to take your blindfold off. I try not to mess up your hair. It's looking. (laughs) God reaches into our world and removes the blindfold. And when he does that, it's like now this guy can see what's going on. And he's like, what am I saying? How ridiculous is it that I'm mocking this guy as I'm suffering the same fate? And he realizes the situation he's in. And he thinks, the only hope I've got is that this guy actually is who he says he is. This is the moment of truth. There's a sign above his head, King of the Jews. And they're all taunting him from the crowd. Hey, King of the Jews, if you're really the chosen one of God, save us all, you know, prove it. And it's almost like in that moment, he kind of takes his attention off of mocking Jesus and just kind of looks down and would think to himself back on all the training he received growing up as a Jew, all of the, the Old Testament scriptures he heard, and he thinks, maybe this guy is the Messiah. Maybe he's the one. Thinking back to like all the passages that the Messiah would suffer many things and be led like a lamb to the slaughter, that he would be humble and lowly, that he wouldn't come as this conquering king, but he would come as this humble servant. And he thinks... He's not angry. He's not yelling at anyone. He's not cussing them out back at them, which would have been a normal thing to do in crucifixion. Be like, shut up, you know, leave me alone. Instead, he's just hanging there, taking it all. Crown of thorns, purple robe, sign above his head. It's like it all hits this guy in one moment. And he's like, no, this is my only hope. And he turns to Jesus and he's like, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. You guys can go sit down. You can take the blindfold off too, Michael, if you want. And he, he has the blinders kind of taken off of his life. And for the first time in his whole existence, he can see the Messiah. And he realizes it's the only hope he's got. Now on the surface, it appears like both of these criminals are asking for the same thing. They're both asking for help, right? But you have to dig a little deeper to find out what they're really asking. The first criminal is asking to avoid physical death. The second criminal is asking to gain eternal life. Those are two different things. The first criminal is saying, if he proves it, I'll believe him. The second criminal is saying, I believe him, he's already proved it. The first criminal wants God to make things right for him, and the second criminal wants to make sure he's right with God. See, everybody wants God's help, but not everybody wants God's holiness. And that's what's going on in this story. Who wouldn't want God to get him off the cross? I'm about to die, God. Save me. While you're at it, save yourself. Everybody wants that. But this guy does something different. And in this story, two kind of distinct attitudes emerge. I'm going to show them both to you. I've nicknamed them some stuff here, and then I want to read them to you again so you can see them. The first attitude that shows up is selfish cynicism. That's the first guy. He's not interested in loving Jesus. 
He's not interested in having a relationship with him for all of eternity. He just wants out of his punishment. Selfish. He doesn't really believe Jesus is God. He doesn't believe Jesus is the chosen one, the Messiah, to save him. He just thinks, hey, I might as well take a shot, roll the dice, get me out of this. He's a cynic. Prove it, Jesus. Save yourself and us while you're at it, he says. Look back at the verse, verse 39. Listen to what he says. One of the criminals hanging beside Jesus scoffed, so you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. You see it? Kind of cynical. Doesn't really believe Jesus. Isn't really interested in any kind of relationship with him. Just wants help. This prayer gets prayed all the time in our world. Lord, give me a good parking spot. (laughs) I just want a good parking spot, Lord. What about loving me? I'm not interested in that, Lord. Just help me get, just help me get, help me get this new job, Father. Make this loan go through, Lord. I just want this debt so bad. I don't want to love you or know you, but if you could just make this house fall into my lap, I'll take it, Lord. Abracadabra. That's the God we want. That's the response this first guy gives him. He's a con man trying to run game on Jesus. I see this person all the time. The church attender, the Bible reader, the Facebook poster. Oh, they love Jesus if you just read their posts. But they're still in charge of their own life. Jesus is not going to tell them what to do. Really love him, spend time with him, get to know him. Be as close as a brother to him, not on my watch. Too busy living my best life now. The cynic, the selfish cynic. The second attitude that shows up there is the attitude of humble helplessness. Did you see it in the second guy? Humble helplessness. Let me read it to you. If you're an underliner or a note taker, highlight these in your Bible app or underline these in your Bible. I'm going to read through some of these with you, but this humble helplessness attitude that the second guy shows. Start in verse 40. But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God? Underline, that's the first one. Don't you fear God? Even when you've been sentenced to die? That's code for the moment of truth, right? Even when you're at the moment of truth? Don't you fear God even now? Verse 41, we deserve to die. Underline that one. We deserve to die for our crimes. But this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me. Underline that one. Remember me, Jesus. When you come into your kingdom, underline your kingdom if you're an underliner or a highlighter. Let me walk you back through because this guy somehow miraculously went from ripping on Jesus to preaching the gospel. I don't know how he did it. It's got to be a God. Like it's got to be a supernatural thing. Oh, I guess I forgot to tell you like, it's impossible to take your own blindfold off. You get that, right? If you've been at our church for any length of time, you've probably heard us say stuff like that. It is impossible. The Bible describes you as blind, utterly helpless, and dead. Now, how are you going to take your blindfold off if you're dead? The only way it comes off is if God reaches down and removes it so you can see. And this guy has had that happen to him. And he starts off by saying, you got to fear God, dude. Don't you fear God even when you're about to die? He recognizes 
That God's the one who's going to decide his eternal fate and destiny. And nobody comes to Jesus, becomes a Christian, is saved, whatever words you want to throw on it, nobody gets eternal life until they first have a fear of what God can do to them. Because if you don't fear God, I got news for you, that means you still think you're in control. So this guy communicates this fear, fear of God, that God, God could crush me. He, he, could, he could send me to hell for all of eternity. And that's really where real Christianity begins a lot of times. But he goes on and he also has this amazing amount of self-awareness out of nowhere. He admits the truth. And in verse 41, he said, we deserve to die for our crimes. He, he gets it. I'm getting exactly what I deserve. Did you notice that the first guy didn't get that? The first guy was like, hey, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, save yourself. And us too. We're kind of the same, right? You and me? So save us all. If we're, we're not the same. The second guy recognizes I'm getting exactly what I deserve, but he's not. He hasn't done anything to deserve this. You see the difference in self-awareness? The one criminal who thinks he's just like Jesus, Jesus, save me. We're just in this together. Let's get out of this, you know? And the other guy's like, no, I'm, I'm getting what I deserve, but he doesn't deserve this. The next part in becoming a Christian, really understanding the gospel, is that level of self-awareness, that I'm broken and screwed up, that I'm sinful, and what I deserve is death forever. But Jesus doesn't deserve to be treated like that. He's pure and perfect. He doesn't stop there. He goes on and believes in Jesus. Kind of the, the, the quintessential sealing piece of the gospel story. Will you believe Jesus or not? Will you trust him or not? How do I know that? Because in verse 42, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Doesn't the guy know Jesus is about to die? How's he going to remember you? Somehow in that moment, he transitioned, and now he believes Jesus is going to live even after he dies. And not only that, but he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And when Jesus dies and comes back to life, he's going to rule over this new kingdom. You see what he just did? He, he admitted and believed that Jesus was telling the truth when he said, I'm going to destroy this temple and build it back in three days. I'm going to have to die and suffer many things at the hands of religious leaders, but I'll come back. And now he believes it. Do you notice the two responses that Jesus gave to the selfish cynic? You see what Jesus' response was? He said nothing. That was almost always Jesus' response to arrogant, selfish prideful people. Save us, Jesus. And, and, and Jesus says nothing, silence. And that's the response from God you can expect if your attitude is, I'm in charge. Who's he to tell me what to do? I don't like the way he wrote it down. I don't like what he's offering. I'm going to do it my own way. Then you can expect crickets from Jesus. And when you stand before him someday at the moment of truth, you can expect to hear from him nothing. You can expect in that moment he's not going to force you into heaven. 
God loves you too much to force you into something you don't want. And and in the end of time, what God is really going to do for everybody in humanity is give them exactly what they've wanted their whole life. Why would God force you to spend the rest of eternity with him if you don't even want to spend time with him now? Why would he force that on you? So he will give you exactly what you've wanted. Silence. Nothing from him. But the other guy, the guy that had the attitude of humble helplessness, Jesus' response was immediate. Immediate. Immediate hope. And you can expect that if you will take the humble position of recognizing how helpless you are and how perfect and pure Jesus is, if you will fear God and believe that Jesus is the only hope you've got for eternal life, he won't get you out of the pain, but he will guarantee you his presence. And that's just what he did for this guy immediately. What did he say to him? I promise you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus should have gotten him off the cross, right? Nope, he was getting the cross because he committed some crimes. Jesus, you should have healed all of his wounds, right? Nope, I'm not interested in those wounds. I'm interested in giving him a new heart. He didn't get him out of the pain, but he gave him the actual guarantee of the gospel, which is that his presence would never leave him. And so this man believes that Jesus is the one, the only one that can save him. He believes that Jesus will die, that Jesus will rise again, that Jesus will rule in this future kingdom. He believes that Jesus, this man hanging there about to die with no ability to do anything, is actually the Lord over everyone and everything. And that is amazing. If you stop and think about that for a second, it's amazing enough when somebody today decides to follow Jesus and believe what he says. Well, we come to church and like the preacher will kind of package it in a good light. Trust Jesus. He's the greatest. Trust Jesus. He can give you an abundant life. Trust Jesus. He will give you an everlasting hope in heaven. Sign me up. But what about trust Jesus? When he's nailed to a cross, unable to move, bleeding to death. Believe that that guy's the king? That he can rescue me? Now that takes faith. And this guy shows it. Why? I just couldn't wrap my head around it all week. And I I don't really know if this is the reason, but when I read you that whole story, I left one verse out in the middle. I want to read it to you. It's one verse in the middle. It doesn't seem like it even fits the context because the whole context of the paragraph I read is Jesus being executed with these criminals beside him and they're all hurling insults at Jesus and mocking him and abusing him and mistreating him. And then there's this one verse right in the middle of all that, verse 34, it says this. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And I don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us, but I have to wonder if that wasn't the moment when this guy is like, what did he say? We were just bashing him. Nobody believes him. Everybody's just abusing him. Instead of getting angry, instead of hurling insults back, he forgives them all? Doesn't even make sense. What am I doing here, ripping on this guy who's sharing the same fate I am? Doesn't even make sense. 
And then Jesus looks at this guy and he guarantees him, I'll be with you this very day. You're not going to have to wait long. See, what I'm saying today is this. You don't want Jesus' justice because what we deserve is to be executed. What you want is Jesus' mercy. And what you see in this story is the mercy and grace of Jesus on full display as he rescues the very last person he would rescue before death. And he doesn't do it with his powerful right hand or his powerful army. He doesn't do it even with his words. He doesn't do it with a miracle. He doesn't do it with fancy teaching. He doesn't do it with some emotional high. He does it with his humble attitude. Huh. Maybe this guy is the Messiah. And I don't know what people have told you before or how you've heard the gospel presented before. I would love to walk through God's actual words with you and what the gospel is. But I try to package it for you as fresh and as new as I can week after week in our church. But one of the things I've told people over the years is the gospel isn't a magic prayer. This guy didn't say any of the catchphrases that we tell people are in the sinner's prayer, which just for the record isn't in the Bible. But he didn't say, dear heavenly father, I confess to you that I'm a sinner I believe in my heart that God's raised you from the dead. I receive your eternal life. I, he didn't use any of those catchwords he's supposed to use. He just said, Lord, remember me. Because it isn't about magic words. It's about the position of your heart towards God. The stance of your attitude towards the Lord. And I've seen people my whole life that are looking at God from their heart like this. Who are you to tell me what to do? And that will not save you. And I've seen people my whole life looking at God like this. <laughs> I dare you to prove you're real. And that will not save you. And I've seen people my whole life looking at God from their heart with an attitude of like, ah, that's for other people. I'm good. And that will not save you. And it doesn't matter how good of a person you are or how many times you come to Three Strands Church. We don't save people here. Jesus saves people. And the only position of your heart, the only stance you can take, the only attitude you can have that will save you and give you eternal life can happen whether you're standing in this room or nailed to a cross, and it's the position of surrender. This is it. You know, if you go anywhere in the world, whether they speak English or not, and you put a gun in somebody's face, they'll go like that. Because the whole world knows that this means I give up. Following Jesus, receiving eternal life, believing on the one true God, confessing Jesus as Lord with my lips, all of the catchphrases in the Bible, they all come back to this attitude of humility and surrender to God. Will I keep being my own boss or does Jesus get to call the shots? I give up Jesus, you call the shots. Will I believe that my goodness will get me into heaven or can only Jesus save me? I believe only you can save me, Jesus. I surrender. That's the attitude. That's salvation. And I want to leave you today with just one question. Just a simple, simple, short question. You ready? What will it take?
for this guy, he got to see the moment of death, the moment of truth coming. You might, you might not. I don't know. But what will it take for you to stop trying to run a con on everybody in your life and God himself? What will it take for you to stop pretending like you're such a good person and you're in the same boat as Jesus, so why don't you help me out, Lord? Do a good one for me, buddy. And instead, throw your hands in the air and give up your life and say to him, whatever you say from now on is the truth. It doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter what I want. It isn't about making more money. It isn't about getting the right girl. It isn't about being content, lazy, and satisfied. It isn't about me being happy. It's about me being holy. And I'm only holy when God removes the blindfold and I cry out to him, remember me. You don't deserve this, Lord. You don't deserve to be treated like I've treated you. But I got no hope without you. So what will it take? What will it take for you to believe that Jesus is actually your only hope? When I was a kid, I sat in my backyard by myself one day and I had this conversation with God. And I said, God, and I was only about Sydney's age, a little older than Sydney, but I sat in my backyard and I said, God, I don't want to go to hell. Fear of God. Someday, I want to go to heaven and live with you forever. You're the king. I love you. I just said the same thing this guy said. Worded a little different. But it doesn't matter how it's worded. What matters is what's in your heart. From that day on, I've been living out eternal life. I didn't understand it all. You don't have to understand it all. You don't have to do anything. What did this guy on the cross do? Nothing. What could he do? Nothing. But this is your moment. It's the moment of truth. I don't know how far away from death you are. Unfortunately for you, you don't know either. But right now, you're in a moment of truth. And whatever you decide in the next three minutes, well, we're wrapping this service up with a song, worshiping, crying out to God, our, only, our one and only hope. What you do in those next three minutes will change the trajectory of your life in one way or the other. It's up to you. And I've seen it all before. It doesn't hurt my feelings. I'm not the God of the universe. It's between you and him. And so I would just challenge you today to answer that question with the Lord in your heart today. What will it take? before I stop running a con on you, before I stop trying to fool everybody, stop trying to be my own God? That's the question today. Will you stand as I pray over us? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for our church. I thank you for Easter. I thank you that the story didn't end on Friday, but that you resurrected on Sunday. God, would you wash over our room right now with your grace and truth? And would you give everybody in the room the courage to respond in faith to you on the level they need to, to receive the gift that's being offered of grace from your son to them and to not do it on their own any longer, to stop running the con and start, start trusting in the Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Thanks again for listening in on the Three Strands podcast. If you've never visited us in person, we'd love to meet you face to face. We gather every Sunday at 11 a.m. at the McCreary County Park Building. We hope to see you soon.